it has given me a wealth of social capital. It's given me a wealth of interpersonal capital. It's given me a wealth of artistic and creative capital that, that money just can't buy. You know, friends are better than money every day of the week. And, and I'm, I really do feel like I'm one of the luckiest, wealthiest people I know. Cause it's, I couldn't have imagined a life like this, not even five years ago. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family and part two of my interview with bassist Jeff Harshbarger. Strictly speaking, the bass is not a member of the violin family, but rather a member of the viol family. So I asked Jeff to talk about this difference. I think the bass is, uh, it's only beginning to be standardized. I mean, a violin is a violin is a violin. The, 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 uh, the dimensions got figured out a long time ago and no one's messed with it. You know, it, it's about as, the technology has, has been about as perfected as it's going to be. Uh, the bass is still being wrangled. And, and I think a lot of people have, have chosen certain dimensions now. Um, that this, we were talking earlier about the, the unique uh, problems of being a traveling bassist and, and not being able to have your instrument at all times. That's influenced a lot of luthiers to standardize, to, to have a conversation. It's like, what are most bass players asking for? Because um, we should probably build those. You know, we should probably have those ready. And so people are, it, it's changed the market for what a new instrument is. It's changed the market for what is desirable in old instruments. Tone still trumps everything. And, and I'm more than happy to, you know, if I found a bass that had a really wonky neck and a really messed up string length and, and, and things were, the shoulders were too big. And for, you know, if all the things were stuff that I didn't like about the physicality of the instrument, but it, it sounded like home and it felt like home, fine. Don't care. I'll figure out how to play the thing. So, yeah, I, I let the musicologists argue over what is a bass and what isn't a bass and whose family it belongs to. I've got too many notes to play. It's not my job. Well said. Well, I um, first saw you play here in Lawrence. Yeah. Tell me a little bit or relate a little bit how that all happened and what the concert was like and what your experience was. Sure. Um, Perna Bangare is a uh, – he's the I – I believe he runs the calculus department here at Kansas University. But he also happens to be one of the world's great Carnatic violin players. He's steeped in both – northern and southern Indian tradition. And, and it's been explained to me that's like saying someone is a fantastic classical soloist and a genius jazz improviser. It's two completely different worlds. And to have so someone... So and Grappelli or something. Yeah, yeah, just like in the same human. And it's, so it's, there are very few that have done that kind of homework and, and have absorbed both styles. And he approached me. Uh, we met through a mutual friend of ours, another great violinist, uh, Grisha Sandomirsky, and he, uh, uh, he said, yeah, I, I'm working on this new, this new metaraga, this new theory. It, it starts, it's this math thing that I've been working on, but it turns out it, it, it looks really good in music. I'm trying to expand what the raga is from the Indian side of things. And you're, I understand you're a jazz improviser. I'd love to get together with someone and talk about you know, what the perspective from 
Western jazz, this where this sits in your tradition. This conversation started just over a year ago. Oh, gosh, maybe even two years ago. And um, it's been fascinating because Asparta is coming at a musical concept from math first at a very advanced level of mathematics. So to, to hear him, but he's, he's truly fascinated with the blues. Like the blues doesn't exist in, in, in his system. It, it's not there. There are certain ragas that can incorporate the blues. And I'm just starting to understand uh, how he does the his gamak system and all the microtones and and, and how look, that's sort of their improvisational flavor like like you've got a raga that exists with a certain number of notes and in a certain kind of modality but how someone plays the microtones inside that raga is your voice it's your flavor so uh, just like the tone of of Coltrane versus Lester Young, you know that's like that's the, the you can tell who it is right away. So how they play microtones is how you know who the violinist is. And then trying to incorporate Western uh, improvisational ideas with this mathematical construct coming from an Indian system, it it gets complicated really fast. And I don't know if we always uh, communicate well, <laughs> but but. Um, I just really enjoy letting him do his thing and figuring out how to support it, you know, as a, as a good bass player is supposed to. When he added David Balakrishnan to the mix, uh, um, David has done an excellent job writing this piece that uh, incorporates all of, it, it kind of decodes Perna's ideas because David has, has a vast knowledge of the Indian system. And he spent a lot of time in his life mixing the two, putting the Indian system inside of a Western classical chamber uh, uh, genre. With Turtle Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so that has cleared up a lot of things, like him showing up and, and doing a lot of things in Western notation and discussing what different modalities mean in, in a very clear Western way was, was great for me. It helped me figure out what to do and, and uh, what, what is allowable and what is inappropriate. Um, it just made made my choices better. It widened my palette. You know, I, I, I got a little, a lot more confidence as to what I could do to help Perna and his vision. And then the tabla player Amit Kavitar is just unbelievable. <laughs> it's just amazing. He plays so so well. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite drummers I've ever played with. It just and we play very well together. It just feels like home right away. There was never a discussion of. Where in the beat, push, pull, like none of these things that sometimes you have to talk about. It just it was innate. It was just, oh, we're here. We're going to do this together now. We don't have to talk about it. And you just like friends right away. You know, it was it was great. Yeah. They're so, not really singing drums, I guess, in the way of the African singing drums. But, I mean, they are. They are. They, they sing with melody. Yeah. And like you were saying earlier about the bass, it's, it's a percussion with notes. And yeah. I thought it was a brilliant mix, the four instruments together. Really was a sound I had never heard, and I'm, I'll remember that. Yeah, I've I've never done anything quite like it, and uh, I've never done anything with four really radically different musicians like that. I think we all come from a very different place, and I'm just sort of honored that they wanted to have me along. It, it was really, really, really fun. I hope we do a lot more. Uh, David was very turned on by the whole thing. He's talking about writing more for this ensemble and 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 hopefully performing 
there's already a few gigs in the works for the fall. So uh, I hope it continues because it's been very illuminating for me. Let's listen now as Jeff performs as part of the Porna Loca Quartet. Talk about uh, the role of the bow in the bass. Sure. Um, I view the bow as another timbral choice to play the instrument. And and I hear things differently when I use the bow than when I'm just using my hands. Uh, there are, each, each expression has its benefits and its limits. And the bow for me is, uh, um, you know, I'm not... I don't know all the all the solo classical literature. I'll just be honest. I put the bow down for about ten years. I just didn't mess with it after I got out of college. I was kind of sick of it. I didn't enjoy studying old classical literature on the instrument. I thought it sounded goofy. Uh, it just wasn't for me, and so I put it down and just played a lot of jazz and a lot of uh, modern and experimental music. And then after a while, I started. Uh, uh, I got asked to join a tango band. So I had to pick the bow up again. And so I was searching for a French bow. I had a German bow at the time. My first, my earliest teacher was a cellist and uh, wasn't very diligent about how I held the bow, so it gave me some nerve damage. Um, I got to college, and that teacher was a, an old Russian guy, and he took one look at my French grip, and he's just like, no, <laughs> go buy a German bow right now. Like, I'm not, I'm not teaching you anymore if, until you get a German bow. So he forced me to fl- switch over. It was good. Uh, I learned more about uh, how to get a much bigger sound. And did he change um, your grip? Is there the Russian grip in the bass? I know there is in the in the violin. Isn't there the Russian grip versus another kind of grip? Um, I'm sure there is. He taught me uh, his grip, you know, which is basically this egg shaped grip uh, to hold the German bow, you know, on the underhand with a much fatter frog. Um, he was pretty insistent that I didn't put my thumb on top of the stick. But I I kept wanting it there anyway because I felt like I had more torque and I had more control over tone with using less musculature. Uh, but he wanted it something something else. I've got this funny double joint in my thumb and I made that really uncomfortable. So we would argue constantly over where my thumb would go. It's like this feels good. What you want feels bad. And he's like, you could make it feel good. It's like, well, I'm not going to break my thumb to feel good for you. So I'm sorry. We're just not going to. We're not going to work out as teacher-student. 
and I think it's led to a big reason as to why I put the bow down. It's just like, yeah, it's not for me. I'm not going to get really great at this if that's what it takes. So I'll just not do it. But then, like I said, I joined that tango band. Um, and so to get the proper articulation, you've got to play French grip. You have to play overhand because your, your wrist has to do this certain whip to get the bass to get a certain sound. But I was fascinated by the music because it mirrors jazz. Uh, the function of the bass is very, very similar. You're walking bass lines a lot. You're improvising these bass lines a lot. You're being very supportive. Um, but unlike jazz, you're, um, there's a lot of different articulations. There's a lot of pre-target sounds that guide a dancer to when and how they step. And that's sort of the art of tango bass playing is to help a dance floor maneuver and you can do a lot of control and a lot of damage by how you play the walking notes and what your stroke is like and it's just it's easier with an overhand grip so i developed this funky technique of, of using a german bow but using a french grip because i couldn't find a french bow that i liked i had this strange no-name german bow that i bought off of ebay for 50 bucks but i knew it was pernambuco that was the what i wanted it was a strong stick, and it could take a beating because there's a lot of sound effects in tango music. You're doing a lot of banging against the strings, and the arrastre and the jumba are very—they're uh, very aggressive techniques to get that sound. Because it used to be one bass player for an entire orchestra, typica, uh, you know, to cut through 20 people, just like there used to be one bass player to cut through a big band, and no amplification. So I was trying to figure out that style, and and that led me to a, a certain way of. Of, of playing tango that when I finally got a French bow that I liked, uh, it, it was a whole new world of, of, of tonal possibilities because I finally had a decent bow and it had just a richer sound. The harmonics were clean. It was no longer a struggle to play in thumb position. So I got really interested in, in studying the bow and, uh, and, and sought out some teachers to help me with the nerve damage. And it's so, uh, some friends of mine had been studying with Francois Rabath for several years and, and they said, you've got to go see him next time you're in Europe, take some time off from Paris and go, go hang out with the guy. And he's done me a world of good. It's been amazing. Tell me more about him. Francois is, uh, he's 85 and he's stronger than I am and faster than I am and cleaner than I am. And he makes better coffee and he has more friends and he's, he's Superman. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> And uh, one of the things that I love about him is uh, when I went to him, I was very skeptical. Um, he uses a, um, you drill a separate hole into the bottom of the bass and use a wooden in pin. So it sits in front of you more like a cello and it frees up. It changes the center of gravity. So it's easier to play. You don't have to hold the bass as much. It doesn't weigh as much anymore. It removes a lot of uh, weight and balance responsibility from the player. It makes it much more symmetrical. So there's a lot more you can do technically, but then it requires you. Uh, I'm a typical American jazz bass player. Well, I pull my sound out of the wood and I use a lot of torque and I use a lot of, of just the angle of the instrument is just different. And if I were to play the way I like to play as physical as I like to be with that style of an in pin, the bass is just rocking side to side every time I pull the string. So I... I had to confess to him, it's like, I'm here because I have pain when I play with a bow in my wrist. My friends tell me you're the guy that can fix that. I'm concerned that if I adopt all of your technique, including the Ben Impin, it's going to steal my sound because I like to, I'm, and I know myself well enough to know that I'm not going to be able to stop. Like, I love playing hard. I love pulling hard. I love getting that 
percussive attack sound with that big round body in the note. And unlike any other teacher I've ever had, Francois says, I can't take anything from you, and I don't want to. I can only add things to you, and you will know when to use them and when to not. It's the least dogmatic way of learning the instrument I've ever experienced. And, and every time I see him, it's like a really talented doctor. He just diagnoses a problem in, in 10 minutes. It's like, oh, you need to do this. And you start doing that and go, oh, no, that was that simple. It's like, yeah, you just forgot one thing. Remember the thing you forgot. And, and sort of the crux of his teaching is sort of reminding you of things you've forgotten and asking you to focus on them in a much clearer, cleaner way. And then it infiltrates everything else that you're doing, and it opens up a lot of possibilities. So it's, it's been a real blessing to have a great, great teacher in my middle age. It's been, it's been marvelous. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. What a gift. Oh, no, I'm very, very fortunate that I get to spend time with a guy. I get to see him once or twice a year, and it's just it's amazing. Yeah, he's great. Who do you think might take his place when he's gone? You said he's way up in years? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at some point in time, um, one of the things that is valuable about studying with him is he's, like all great teachers, he's helping me to learn how to teach myself. And that's, that is the big goal. And it's, so it's also affected how I teach. You know, I, I've, I've adopted a lot of things that he does because it's just a good, a good way. Um, yeah, he's giving me tools to, to be curious, to stay curious. I think it takes a certain level of technique to realize that you're never done. There's always more to be done. And and it matches my own personality when I've practiced for a long time anyway. I've always have a a system that I use where I start with, you know, once I get in tune, the first in the day I start with long tones because it just gets the box vibrating and it makes the box feel really good. Um and then the, no matter what it is that I'm practicing, I always end my practice session with uh, goofing off. And I feel like that's the most important part of practice. If I feel like my time's limited, I won't actually work on any repertoire or any technique. I'll just goof off because no one's ever gravitated toward this instrument thinking, boy, I can't wait to learn all my natural modes of the harmonic minor scale and you know, E flat. Like No one's ever said that sentence ever. It's not the thing that turns you on about the instrument first it's it's a sound it's a feeling it's 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 what figuring out what the thing can do so i'll spend half an hour you know trying to get the best elephant sound out of it that i can or i'll just play really old sad jazz songs from the 30s or uh, do you uh, or do you play a recording at all and work with it or is it just out of your mind you're playing these pieces um sometimes i will play along with a record i like uh i like studying time no changes so I'll put on uh, records that have rhythm sections that I really like the way they feel. And uh, you know I know the tunes they're playing, but I'm not concerned about transcribing every note the bass player is playing. I just want to play so I feel like I'm playing well with that band. I find that very helpful. Mm. Um, but yeah, other times I, I'm trying to find it. Uh, I spend a lot of time working on some solo uh, bass voice stuff. Uh, I think that's what's next in my playing. I've had some friends do some of that. I find it intriguing, and I'd like to do some more. There's a fella from Europe named Hiri Slavic who is really, really great. I recommend everyone listen to him. 
Uh, he, where's he located? He's in he's out of Prague, oh. but uh, he's a mainstay at the big International Society of Bases convention. You'll always see him there. And and if you're going to go to that thing, do not miss his concert. It's I guarantee you, you'll never have seen anything like it. He's a master on the instrument, but everything he does, he does to serve the song. So he'll sing a jazz standard, and he'll sing some like really old Hungarian tune where he's using the bass to emulate these traditional Hungarian instruments. He's not even trying to think about being a bass player, but that's his instrument. So he's really influenced by the world and 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 all different kinds of sounds. And, and he's just a great player. He's got a great voice. Yeah, I've, I've been entranced every time I've seen him play. So there's a hot tip. <laughs> We're living in a time unlike anything I have ever seen in my life in terms of the political world and way it's the changes it's going through. What we think is is art and culture, mm. the way the mechanisms of popularity decide this is the thing that everyone should pay attention to. Right. And uh, and yet these people that I'm interviewing often are are staying true to a particular path that has meaning and endurance for them and yeah. enchantment for them. Anything you'd want to say about this uh, the, the changing um, cultural environment and creative environment and how you're concerned or you're hopeful about it? Mm. I am in a very fortunate place to have a it's it's the widest amount of diversity I've ever had in my playing career right now. Uh, and just for example, this month, my Turkish jazz ensemble played at a jazz festival, and then my old Argentinian tango band is playing again this weekend. I played some this new modern Indian classical improvisatory music. Uh, I had a I performed the um, uh, Soldiers Stravinsky Soldier's Tale with a Bakari soloist recently. I've got my uh, avant-garde jazz stuff. I've got a, a, a modern free improv group that's doing a new record. I have a big band that I play with that's all original music. I have a lot of jazz singers that have been backing up. There's a, a couple of modern saxophone players that are writing that I get to play for. Um, I'm doing my own singing. There's an R&B singer named Crystal Warren that's coming from Paris that I'll play with uh, tomorrow night. I'm learning all her material. Uh, tonight, no, that's that's Wednesday night. Tomorrow night, I'm doing uh, John Coltrane's Ascension with a group of guys from New York. I, I've never known a time that was this diverse uh, um, in all the different things I get to do. And that has been the goal my whole life, is to just do as... The fastest way to get me out of the house and with my instrument is to offer me an opportunity of something I've never done before. It's, it's, I feel it's my duty to say yes. It just makes me stronger. I'm collecting uh, influence. I'm collecting information that makes my own voice and my own compositional ideas uh, more varied, more colors in my palette. And I think if if an artist is thinking that way, um, then I would highly recommend embracing it because it has given me a wealth of social capital it's given me a wealth of interpersonal capital it's given me a wealth of artistic and creative capital 
that that money just can't buy. You know, friends are better than money every day of the week, and and I'm I really do feel like I'm one of the luckiest, wealthiest people I know because it's I couldn't have imagined a life like this not even five years ago. I think it's just saying yes and being open and being generous can lead you to really really great things. I'm not too concerned with what the media tells me I should or shouldn't be listening to. Um, I quite enjoy some modern pop music. I think Kendrick Lamar's latest record is fantastic. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that's coming out that just, you know, it's not its not for me. It's not meant for me either. I'm 42. You know, there's a lot of music that's out there that it's meant for 18-year-olds. It's not mine, and I don't need to claim it. And they don't care if I claim it or not either. It's you know, it's, It feels like uh, culture as capitalism. Uh, and it's... It's not. It's not too interesting to me. Um, collaborations interesting to me. Crossing cultures is interesting to me. Traveling is interesting to me. So, uh, I recommend people don't shy away from those things. Like get out of a pigeonhole, and and it will. It will make things. Uh, I don't know. Muddying up your influences can can make your mind a lot cleaner. At a time when, you know, some of the narrative, whether in Europe or here in the United States, is uh, we don't want that much change now. we got to put up some walls. we got to stop some of these influences. These are invasive species, as it were. Right. And uh, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. Most of the musicians I talk to, this is where the life is coming to them from all these different influences and people trying to think their way through. Right. What, what, what is enchantment? You know, what touches the soul? What does the soul need? And why is music this thing right. <laughs> we're willing to spend so much time on? Because um, it's often not about making money. Right. It's really. So rarely is it about making money. I, I think, I don't know, it's just so old. The idea of what music is and what it means to us is so old uh, and, and so intrinsic into what it is to be a human. And there isn't a single culture that doesn't need it, that doesn't have it. Um, I loved David Byrne's book on, on how music works. I thought it was great because from the get-go, it was very important to him, as important to him, where music is being made as to what that music is and what an influence the space that you're in has. And he, he, the first examples he gives is like why European religious-based music sounds the way it does because you're in cathedrals where things ring for a long amount of time. So these long sounds that you're writing as opposed to Fijian gamelan, where you're outside in in a village square where the notes just disappear quickly. So there's lots of notes and lots of people playing, lots of very percussive pitched instruments. And it just makes sense. Like the culture you're in, where you are, will drive the kinds of sounds that you want to make and that you're hearing and that are natural to you. Or even that you might be mimicking. Yeah. Because you're hearing that out in the woods or some bird. Exactly. I, I love all the Hermeto Pascal stuff that he did, uh, that, that Brazilian composer. He goes out in the middle of the rainforest with a, just a, a really, really rudimentary field recorder and recorded every rare bird he could and then came home and used that as the bed loop for, for all these wonderful compositions that he made. Just like so creative, so inventive. And I think and we've always done that. You know, you've had great Western European composers looking towards birdsong are looking towards you know three countries over for their folk dances. Well, what you were saying, I, I interviewed uh, a person in Pittsburgh, and uh, 
he, I think he had the experience himself where he went in, or maybe he was talking about somebody who did this. I think it was him. Went into one of these uh, isolation chambers. Oh, yeah. And played the violin. And it was the most unpleasant experience yeah. he'd ever had. <laughs> yeah. And I love that idea because, you know, we go on and on about this is a Stradivarius, this is a Guarneri. You know, this instrument is making such beautiful music. Played outside of a context, mm. like you're talking about. When yeah. the medium isn't even there, this is not a pleasant experience. Right. So I thought that was so interesting. I'd never thought in those terms. And a question I have asked a few people, and now you're going to make me ask you, is sure. a couple places you recall with great fondness that you got to play your bass for whatever uh, reason. Yeah. Um, the Kaufman Center of the Performing Arts, uh, Hellsberg Hall in Kansas City, is a new thing to our town. And I was fortunate enough to have a solo performance in uh, in Hellsberg. It was, it was designed by the same acoustician that did Disney Hall. And it's, it is a stunning, amazing room. The acoustics in there are, are really perfect. The whole floor is a giant resonating chamber. You're on the inside of a big violin. The room is shaped like a violin. So it's acoustically just, just marvelous. It's all master spruce on the walls and everything bounces the right way. And even from solos to even really, really big ensembles, I watched Joyce DiDonato sing in front of a symphony. And I was sat two balconies up behind the orchestra, behind the basses. So Joyce is you know, a good 50 feet below me and, and 25 feet in front of me facing the other way. And I felt like she was singing in my ear. The place is just fantastic. So I was really fortunate to do a solo bass voice thing there once. And the room helps you with everything you're good at and truly exposes everything you're not. It is, an, it is a giant amplifier for you and, and all the things you are as, a, as, a, as an instrumentalist, as a performer, as a human, as a, as a giver, as a storyteller. Like all those things are there for you and, and laid bare. And that's just, that's better than grad school, man. Like that one afternoon, I learned so much about sound and time and space and and what i'm interested in and what i'm not and and what i need to work on and and what actually you know it's like oh i didn't there was one moment I'm like man i actually think i sound really good at that <laughs> it's like i i never get that kind of feedback i never feel like really amazing about something i've done until that moment it's like oh no i have to rethink about what i think is good and what i think i'm good at it's very very eye opening just a really wonderful experience the, and the other one that comes immediately to mind is, uh, is playing in this jazz club in Hong Kong of, of one of those great examples where uh, it doesn't matter where you're from. It was this international group of guys. I just went to a jam session. So there was a guitar player from Sweden and a, and a drummer from Thailand and then just a bunch of guys from everywhere. But we all shared this common language and the crowd was into it. It was just a lot of just noisy and raucous and... and debaucherous and a really really wonderful just you know dirty jazz memory it's like how it's supposed to be it's just it's that that myth that you don't think exists anymore there are times that that it shows up i don't know how to go anywhere from there <laughs> <laughs> well i mean what about yeah I mean, you've been playing a long time you know what's uh what's one of those times that you can recall well, a couple i got to many years ago and i was a you know very new player but I, we went on this pilgrimage. Uh, I was working in a home for 
mentally disabled adults. Yeah. But there were these homes all over the British Isles in Ireland, and some were physical, uh, physical disabilities and mental disabilities. And the Church of England had come to a conclusion that they had not really been that welcoming to this population. No and kidding. They wanted to change it. <laughs> yeah. This is back in the 70s. Yeah, sure. We were. And so they, uh, some group organized this pilgrimage where all these uh, houses, homes and stuff, ours was a resident home in Inverness, Scotland. We would all come to, uh, uh, to uh, Canterbury right. to, the, uh, to the cathedral at Canterbury. But we all met seven miles or five miles out of town in wheelchairs and, you know, people with Down syndrome. It was wild. Right. And we had a pilgrimage into the city. And uh, there were people dressed up as knights and, and monks from a theater group and a big dragon. Mm. And little uh, vignettes would happen all the way in. And we finally get to the cathedral. In front of the cathedral, the doors are closed. And there's a, a large plaza area in front. And there's about 400 people there. Yeah. And suddenly... One of the knights bangs on the door, you know, boom, 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 and then the doors swing open, and there's the Archbishop of Canterbury and his prelates formally welcoming us in. And this yeah. was on a Friday, and we had the run of the place until Sunday night. And two things there that I remember. One is I got to play my fiddle in the crypt, mm-hmm. the oldest part of the cathedral, yeah. and way down in the, you know, the lower reaches and all that stone and the reverb, yeah. it was magic. For me. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. And the history. And then the other is I played the largest square dance I ever did. There were about four or five other people who played kind of Americana. I had a banjo player and a fiddler, and we had no sound system, but we set up a Virginia reel in the yard between the chapter house and the cathedral. Mm. I mean, it was huge. It was just long, and nobody could hear you unless you walked around the dance. So we were playing and walking. Right. And then I was calling. I'd say, you know, bow to your partner. And then Everyone would look at each other to understand what, you know, wheelchairs. It was the best Virginia reel I ever played in my life. <laughs> that's not so People fun. People had so much fun. So that was a highlight. A weird place. And since you mentioned this, I was thinking about when you said this. A weird place, but it was really an enjoyable experience. There's a place called the Whipple Company Store okay. in central West Virginia. And they've now turned it into a museum. But it is a real coal company store, one yeah. of the last that still exists. It's a round structure. Uh, essentially the main room. Right. And there would be counters all the way around the room that the wives of the coal miners, because the coal miners are underground 12 hours a day. Right. So the wives would come in, and often they were from Slovenia or Italy, you know, from other countries. And this is right during the wars that were going on in the coal fields right. and the owners and the bosses and the union trying to come in. Right. Well, this building, this building, there were several built exactly to this pattern by this coal owner. And the way it worked is there was a piece of concrete right dead center in the room, Mm. and there was a counter right there. So it looked like somebody selling gloves and stuff. But it turns out it was a company spy who could speak a number of languages. And no matter where in that room you were, even at a whisper, the sound would come right to that spot. Right. So they could hear you planning a union strike or an activity, and they could get ahead of you with the Feltz Baldwin goons, you know, that they had hired. Was it an accident of that room, or was it no, designed? It was designed. Oh, wow. This was all done. And and so we went into this museum, and they were giving us a talk, and it's uh, very West Virginia. You know, this is not like a formal museum, sure. but it was the owner of the building taking us around. And she told us that, and it turns out her daughter plays the violin. And I had my violin, and we played, I think, a Shokin Farewell, mm-hmm. uh, standing right at that spot. And... Uh, 
it was the one, one of those times where you hear yourself playing, and it wasn't like there was didn't even seem to be a delay. It was just right then. Right. And, you know, you're hearing how you really are sounding. Yeah. And you're immediately adjusting everything. Yeah. Hearing something, I think maybe a little bit what you were talking about. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So that's my experience. Yeah, those are are some very few and far between moments for us. That they're they're so wonderful. You know, and I I think it's something akin to when you're playing some really great improvisation and you're you're what's happening is the the, the sound coming out the other end of the band is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, sometimes it's almost an out of body out of body experience. Like I, f- I feel like I'm not really in control anymore. I'm sort of hovering somewhere out and behind myself, just kind of observing what's going on. And, and you, there are these rare moments that you you do sort of just feel like a vessel that you're channeling some other thing. You've gotten your ego completely out of the way, and you're just playing, and you're not acting or reacting. Like it's it's beyond that. Those are those issues of control and, and uh, subservience just aren't there. And it's and, almost like we live in time. Yeah. And you step out of time. Yeah. So all you goes away because there's no you. Right. Out of that. You're in that moment. The music's always been playing. Yeah. As if it's been playing itself. Yeah. That's when it's And really, I wish we really could good. communicate that to young people to understand that, uh, you know, there are these experiences available to them in life. Um, yeah. Instead of this very paltry diet of what we we offer them now is, you know, what, what life can give them. I don't know as if they, they know what's possible. Um, I, I, I think it's part of our job as, as artists, you know, is to, is to convey uh, the, the transcendental. Like that, that's our gig. That, that's our job. And I think a lot of musicians, especially, they get too wrapped up in the data especially if stuff's written down on a page. That's just data. None of that means anything. It's just hieroglyphs. No one's ever heard a bar line in their life. So if all you're really concerned about is bar lines, then, then you're missing the point. You know, that's just a way of organizing an idea that represents a sound that someone wrote that wants to hear, uh, that wants to be heard. That's a way to transmit this data through the ages. But it's no different than cave paintings, man. Those cave paintings are fun. They're interesting, but they're not the thing, the feeling. They have a representation of what that, that transcendental feeling is, and that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Some a poet I know, uh, Maria Gillen, mm. somewhere she had read that these cave paintings in France, the most intricate and really the, the best paintings mm. are the ones furthest into the cave. Right. I love that that idea, you know, the the symbolism of that. That you have to go a little deep. You yeah. have to go into who you are a little bit. And Definitely. Don't be afraid of that. But if you get in there, um, things get more interesting all the time. Well, to be perfectly honest, that's why I stopped singing um, uh, in my early, when I was twenty, I think. I realized that to get any better at it, I had to give a lot more to it. And it was much. I've been playing a lot longer, so it was much more comfortable for me to hide behind a big chunk of wood, and and no one really knowing what it is that I was playing about. I like that mystery of instrumental music that is not there when you're singing. There's a much more naked, raw uh, moment, and it took. It just took me a little bit more life to get to a comfortable spot where I could share that much. 
Uh, and, and I think I just had to mature and grow up a little bit to, to make it uh, possible to be comfortable with that kind of sharing. And once I started doing that, it made my bass playing way better, way more personal. That's when I realized, you know, the dots are data and they're not important. You know, there's more, they're just, that's a way to get to what's important. You have to go through it. And, and to do that work, to, to get that deep down into what's important to you and what drives you and what terrifies you. If you, if you can share that with an audience, you can connect and then you can transcend a lot of the dumb shit that we're all dealing with. <laughs> Good way to put it. <laughs> po poetry, if ever there was. The dumb shit we're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, and maybe uh, we could take just a minute. I'd love to maybe have you do a little piece for us. Oh, geez. Um, sure. Is that possible? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, what, I did somebody on public television, a guy who does brain stuff, he, he works on the 20, 40, 60 principle. Did you ever hear this? No, I don't know this. 20 years old, you're, you're totally concerned with how people think about you. Sure. At 40, you, you don't care anymore. Right. You get to where you don't care. Right. At 60, you realize they were never thinking about you in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I love this thing. Never underestimate how much people are not thinking about you. <laughs> Yeah, you well, never underestimate. That can be very freeing. It's very freeing. <laughs> yeah, if you're not worried about it, great. Worry about all the other stuff. Play your music. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you, sir. I just found joy. I'm as happy as a baby boy. That is playing with his choo-choo toy Oh, when I'm with my sweet Lorraine She's got a pair of eyes That are bluer than the summer skies Can't you see oh, why I realize Why I love my sweet Lorraine And when I'm with her, I don't miss the sun Cause I see it in my baby's eyes I can't believe that I'm the lucky one Who will walk her down the aisle Each night I pray That no one will steal her heart away I can't wait until that lucky day when I marry sweet Lorraine. When I'm with her, I don't miss the sun Because I see it in my baby's eyes I can't believe that I'm the lucky one Who will walk her down the aisle Each night I pray 
that no one will steal her heart away i can't wait until that lucky day when i marry sweet lorraine i can't wait until that lucky day when i marry sweet sweet lorraine Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We would like to thank the Kansas University School of Music for hosting our visit to Lawrence, Kansas, and Kansas Public Radio for the generous use of their studios. Wherever we travel in this world, we find a great love of music among people of all backgrounds and ages. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast, and will listen again to Rosin the Bow. ¶¶